The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, good afternoon. I'm glad a few of you managed to get here through the rain and the time change. Maybe, maybe there'll be a surge of people in an hour or so. <laughs> so, uh, um, so we're moving into the last of the three parts of the path. We started out with the two wisdom factors of view and intention. Then we spent the last three months looking at ethical conduct with regard to our speech and our action and how we make our way in the world through our livelihood, our relationship to society. And probably in the course of that, you've discovered that it, you need mindfulness to work with any of this, right? And you need, and, and it's so interesting to begin to look inward and see what's going on in our minds. And so I hope that the first six months of this program have sort of motivated you to engage with the last three months of it more deeply. Maybe you already have a practice if you don't, you know, to begin to integrate and see the value. How can we really work with these deep mental habits and emotional habits that keep kind of hijacking our good intentions and in, with respect to speech and action and or keep us kind of frustrated in our jobs and so forth? So we've really been looking at, you know, what happens, maybe you've noticed what happens to your internal state when you speak or act from good intentions, you know, what does it feel like when you speak or act otherwise, what happens to our good intentions when we encounter difficult situations, how quickly do they just fly out the window, right? And so that might motivate you to understand how these last three factors of effort, mindfulness, and concentration all work together. So effort we'll be looking at today, and they all work together. You know, it's, the whole path works together. It's artificial to make it out into eight steps. It's not like steps, you know. It's like an eight-lane highway that you have to kind of keep. It's like an eight-lane stereo balancer thing, you know. You need to keep them all going. And yet there is a sort of unfoldment to it also, you know. Um, and it certainly spirals around, you know. So we, need to, we can start to look at what kind of effort, what does it mean to make effort with your internal life? You know, we've probably all discovered that's not so easy. And how do we bring my, increase our mindfulness? And what is meant by concentration in this path? We often think of a kind of furrowed brow and, you know, I'm going to concentrate. But we're really talking about a kind of continuity and deepening of mindfulness. I've been reading this book called Mind Sight by a psychologist who's involved in the Dharma. It's his word for really mindfulness and wisdom together. So mind sight of looking inside the mind, looking at our internal workings a little bit objectively as a process. You know, and how can we deepen the quiet and stillness that we can bring to that observation so that we're not just in there ripping it apart, you know, trying to make things change, but we're making a deeper and stiller space. You know, it's often compared to having a tripod on a camera so that it's really solid, so that you get a more clear picture. So the concentration is that deepening of the stillness so that you can see more detail about what's going on in you and see more deeply into the roots of, of 
the causes of suffering. So, um, so these are the last three factors that we'll be looking at. We'll start today with effort. Bruni and I will be talking. Um, I'll, I'll take the first half of the day and she'll take the second, and I'll say more about that later. I think it would be lovely to have a little bit longer sit than we usually do to celebrate this beginning of working on the mind here. So we'll sit for about 25 minutes, okay? And maybe some people will make their way through the traffic and join us. Okay, so let's begin by just summoning a clear intention of what we're doing when we begin to meditate. We're really working with finding the right balance between not adding unnecessary tension and stress and striving, but also enhancing clarity and presence and awareness. So it's not just collapsing and it's not the usual engagement with trying to make something happen. So we take a posture that's as much in alignment as possible so that we can let the natural shape of our spine our bone structure support our posture without excessive muscle tension. So taking a moment to just come into a sense of natural alignment. Taking a moment to just relax might notice tension around the eyes, a lot of thinking and trying works its way up into the face muscles around the eyes and the jaw. So we can notice what's there. We can't demand that it change, but we can allow it to change if that's possible. to soften. Letting our shoulders relax. Just the weight of the arms the hands resting in the lap. Just letting your attention and your energy sink down into the lower part of your torso, feeling the support of your chair or cushion, 
Letting the awareness flow down your legs, feeling the contact of your feet with the floor. being very clear that you know when you know presence feeling of contact of the body with your seat you don't have to know it up in the head you can know it right where the contact is What is your bottom's experience of sitting in this moment? At some point you may become aware of the sensations of breathing in and breathing out. opening to the felt sense of the body stretching maybe a little expanding on the in-breath relaxing back on the out-breath and being as simple as you can be just knowing that feeling feeling that feeling Just play with what kind of clear intending is needed to stay with that. It's not a matter of forcing. Really appreciating those moments when you do clearly feel something. 
and just remembering to stay with it. Appreciating a kind of stillness of the attention on the place where you feel the breath most clearly. of agitation in the mind and the body settle so that there's more clarity, more receptivity of what's the next sensation without doing anything besides remembering to appreciate being here. to recognize being here. To recognize actually feeling. Changing sensations in the body. Always changing. Can we sit calmly observing this change and the sensations of breathing in and breathing out? Knowing them through our sense of feeling. When you wake up from wandering, maybe don't rush right back to the breath, but just notice, oh, awake now, remembering. It's one of the meanings of sati, mindfulness, remembering where I am. Appreciating that sense of presence. 
reestablishing that clearly and then opening up to receive whatever the next sensation is. not hiding in the breath from other experience. We're not clinging to the breath. We're making a wide open space that allows us to receive the sensations of whatever is predominant in our experience without struggling with it, without getting lost in it. As the mind and body calm down and relax, the breath may come into the foreground. you aware of something that's happening in your experience? What is your experience right now? The breath is always happening. It's easy, just let your attention rest there. A 
if it's not so easy, something else is happening, you can acknowledge the other mental or physical activity. That's happening too. Can we be at ease with it as a phenomenon that's happening along with breathing? What's the least amount of effort needed just to simply know that you know something that's happening right now? And then the next thing. Each moment of mindful connection conditions another moment of mindful connection. We trust that. few minutes, just see if you can deepen the stillness. Just keeping the light of awareness on, knowing the relationship of ease. Here, just here.
Well, I'd like to uh, offer some thoughts on the topic of effort in general, and in particular the first two of the four right efforts I'll be talking about, which have to do with working with difficult states of mind. And then Bruni will talk about um, cultivating positive states of mind. So what comes to mind when we use the word effort and we think about making effort? I think for myself that was a word I had some trouble with when I first came to practice because I really just wanted to relax, you know. I felt stressed enough and I didn't think I knew how to make wise effort. So it really, you have to look carefully at what associations you have with making effort. Often we've, we've spent so much effort trying to force a certain outcome out of external circumstances, you know, get things all lined up the way we want, get other people to behave the way we want them to, to see us, and all that is very stressful, and it is exhausting, and it's kind of, kind of futile, it's kind of grabbing the thing by the wrong end, you know, wagging, tail wagging the dog. Um, It does lead to inner tension and contraction. We literally wind up trying harder and harder. You know, trying hard is exhausting and not really sustainable. So in pursuit of those kind of things, it's easy to lose track of the cost of the means of how we're going about it. And why did we want these things in the first place? We wanted safety, security, happiness, freedom from suffering. So, you know, how to get wiser about making effort. Even idealistic pursuits, like being good and helping others, you know, we can, we can go about that in a way that's exhausting, like we have to get the whole world all fixed up before we can take a breath, you know. That's not going to work. So the Buddha teaches that it's much more fruitful to begin by paying attention to our inner state of heart and mind. Where are we coming from? Attend to our relationship to what's happening and to the state of mind from which springs our actions of speech and body. So this factor is about taking care of the quality of our inner life, taking responsibility for our inner mind and heart. They're really our most precious possession, so to speak, and the root factor that determines the real fruit of our action, whether they lead to more suffering or less suffering for ourselves and others. I have this favorite quote that I read last year, I think from Thoreau, who's one of my favorite people. He says, I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by a conscious endeavor. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue to make a few beautiful objects, but it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look which morally we can do. To affect the quality of the day is the highest of arts. So do you believe this? It's kind of a leap of trust often to let go of manipulating what's going to happen or what they might do, so forth, and turn inward to look at what, what is the quality of our the atmosphere and medium through which we're looking, which is our state of mind. So this is the factor of wise effort. There's a, a 
Burmese teacher, Sayadaw Utejaniya, who's a, a Andrea's teacher, a teacher of a lot of people here. This little quote came from him over the email recently. Why does a wholesome mind arise? Why does an unwholesome mind arise? What is this wholesome or unwholesome mind? Why does a wholesome mind increase? Why does an unwholesome mind grow? Why does a wholesome mind decrease or fade away? Why does an unwholesome mind fade away? This is your field of research. I really like that last line. I guess I've always, maybe I've always wanted to be a scientist and never really did it. But anyway, yes, this is a field of research that we, we are our own laboratory and we can, we can take this on, you know, to understand this. So the teachings on right effort are phrased often in terms of wholesome and unwholesome mind states. That's one translation of this Pali pair of terms, kusala and akusala, which are also translated often as skillful or unskillful or helpful or unhelpful. You know, kind of useful, not useful. Working for you, not working for you. You know, it's kind of, we don't have to take it on as, as good and bad, but really figuring out how this works. It's really helpful to hold this whole vast array of teachings, you know. Sometimes we say relax, sometimes we say try harder, go left, go right, you know. what? It depends. We can certainly get out of balance in all directions. And so as you sit here, as you come to IMC over the years, you'll hear teachings that, you know, you could, you could certainly feel that there's some advice both ways, as there is, because it's about staying in balance. So think in terms of learning a skill, you know, you have to have a certain amount of patience. There are plateaus in learning it. There are surges when suddenly it all comes together and makes sense. There's regressions when something else is coming up and you're not so good at it. And I also like the word wholesome. You know, it's healthy. It's serving the holistic purpose of our lives, the holistic purpose of freedom. And it seems to be really what we need to intuitively consult when we're asking ourselves, is this right effort or not? You know, the big picture of everything that we can sense and know and remember, what aligns the head and the heart and the gut, you know, this is a holistic view of what's right effort in the moment. And it's a really important and beautiful part of this quality that efforting itself is something that needs to be constantly examined to see if it's in balance and skillful and wholesome, appropriate, not causing harm, right? We're not trying to struggle with something in a way that causes more tension and harm. So balanced effort. Another way that effort is often translated is as persistence. You know, small moments many times. The willingness to just begin again. Let go, okay. You know, right now, it's so simple what's being asked for. Can you just open up and acknowledge something that's going on right now? and go for seeing it more clearly than trying to struggle with it. Can we just do that over and over again? And it's lovely and helpful when you can bring your heart into it. You know, sometimes you can maybe arouse a sense of, I don't know, the word devotional works for me, just meaning devoted to showing up over and over again to remind myself that this is something that's very dear to me. Uh, The English monk Ajahn Suchito has a chapter on relating wise energy and wise effort. He talks about it as stewarding our resources. So I love that phrase. We're not wasting energy in unwholesome states of mind or in unwholesome relationship to what's happening or over-striving. 
wholesome states of mind and right effort. They're really releasing what, you know, pent-up energy. They're channeling it, renewing it, refreshing it in a way that, you know, you, you hear sometimes about monks meditating, you know, night after night, all night. When you really get in the groove of good concentration and mindfulness, it's very energizing. You know, and there's a sense of, oh, waking up and clarity and, you know, safety and being able to see all around what's going on, but without a kind of, you know, what do I want to say, hypervigilance, but just clarity, you know, and stability. So there's a couple of, there's a sutta story I'm going to mention now about uh, the need to find balance, which is the story of Sona, the lute player. You've probably all heard this teaching. There was a musician who was one of the monks, came to the Buddha, and he just said, I'm not getting anywhere, I'm going to quit. Something to that effect. And the Buddha asked him, so you're actually a lute player, what happens when the strings are too tight? Do you get a good sound out of it? No. You know, it doesn't sound right, it's too sharp or something, or the strings break. What happens if those strings are too loose? Well, you get a flat, flabby sound of it, it doesn't even make a sound if they're too loose. So he was using that, Buddha used that as an analogy that, in Sona's case, I think he was striving too hard. He was trying too hard to make it, make something happen on his schedule, and he got frustrated and was going to quit. So this analogy of like a tuned instrument, not too sharp, not too flat, not too tight, not too flabby, just just right. So what keeps this balance, as I said, is remembering to include our efforting in part of what we're paying wise attention to. We're seeking to listen, we're seeking to understand, we're seeking to allow the tangles to untangle with this trust that awareness is kind of like the sun that lets these holdings melt in their own good time. So on the other hand, we have deep habits of unskillful over-efforting. So, you know, when you sit down and your mind is very busy, this is a kind of momentum residue of trying too hard for the most part, you know, so we we need to calm down. One of my teachers used to tell me, don't push the river, which I love that. That's like, okay, finding, finding the river and finding awareness of it and not trying to always make something happen or go faster than that. On the other hand, uh, the great English American, but lived in England, Thai forest teacher Ajahn Sumedho, he says, our practice is not to follow the heart, it's to train the heart. So there, you know, there's one of those teachings that you can say, well, which is it? Well, both, you know. Our hearts, I don't know, I know what my heart does when I listen to too much politics these days. It doesn't go to a good place, right? And so it's a big effort to train the heart, you know, not to be recruited by these forces of anger and oppositional thinking. And we have habits of self-pity, habits of zoning out, habits of getting lost in fantasy. So we're training, we're training our hearts, but gently, gently how to work with these things. The other sutta teaching that I really like is about, uh, uh, I guess it was a, a deva, some heavenly being came to the Buddha and asked him, how did you cross over the flood? This metaphor of crossing the flood is often used to talk about getting over this flood of emotional habits that we have. The Buddha says, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place. But how did you do this? And then he amplifies, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. 
And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward. Sometimes that's translated as struggling, without struggling and without staying in place. And so if you just sit down and do nothing, you'll sink what's called sinking mind, which actually it kind of sinks you down and then pulls you into whatever your current is. You know, you're just drifting along with the current of your fantasies or whatever. But if you're trying too hard to make something happen, you're stirring up a lot of contradictory energy that just gets more and more stressful. So I want to move on now to uh, the teaching on right effort. So in his typical common sense and thorough kind of way, that maybe it's an acquired taste to appreciate, but anyway, I always like it when I really look at it, because it's like, yeah, that's what it is. The Buddha breaks down effort into four efforts. Preventing the arising of unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. Don't go looking for trouble, right? And how do you do that? You, you, there's a lot of latent potential for these things to flare up. So how do you not, how do you work? What kind of effort is needed to prevent something from flaring up that hasn't, isn't flared up at the moment? And then overcoming or abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen. So when you wake up, as we often do, in the middle of one of these, some emotional snit or some mind state that you recognize is not helpful, then what do you do? And then the other two are cultivating and maintaining wholesome states, which Bruni will talk about. Um, So, unwholesome states. These are any preventing I'm going to talk about. First of all, a little bit, what are unwholesome states in the teachings? This is states that are rooted in greed or aversion or delusion. You know, grasping at, trying to hold on to something pleasant, get more than your share of it, make it last longer than it naturally lasts. Aversion, wanting to make something go away, maybe out of either fear or anger, either you're pulling back and contracting or you're striking out at it to make something that is happening not happen. Right? And ignorance is just all the ways in which we zone out and go to sleep and watch TV and you know, the whole flood of stuff in the mind that keeps us from paying close attention. It's also present in the other three. Sometimes this is broken down as the five hindrances of sensual desire, ill will, dullness and drowsiness, restlessness and worry, or doubt of the kind of intellectual spinning that just keeps you from actually looking at what's happening. So... Remember that this is our field of research idea. So we can really study what situations get us into trouble and what are our triggers, you know, and we actually have to go back into our lives and look at things, you know, and make some changes with the intention that this is going to stir up. I know where this goes if I indulge in this. So I know that my dietary intentions go better if I don't go to the grocery store when I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've try off and on to make a practice of not going just because I'm hungry, but eat something and then go and then I tend to buy more sensible food and so forth. Obviously, I already alluded to how much time do you want to spend on the internet reading every single story about certain people these days. You know, they're all, you know what they say, right? So how much time do you want to spend on that and how much time do you want to spend letting that go and cultivating your own ability to withstand that kind of emotional resonance that's coming from some of that these days so these are areas where clearly effort mindfulness and wisdom are all mutually strengthening and they're kind of growing each other up and this is a chance 
you know, when something has not arisen, when you're in a fairly balanced state of mind, that's a beautiful time not to be overcome by, well, now let me just kind of vaguely, you know, enjoy this a little more by turning on the TV, you know, or let me just have something to eat to celebrate feeling so good, or whatever your thing is. But you can use that moment to really appreciate it and think, well, how, what, what can I do now that will not stir up some kind of unwholesome state? There's a practice that's recommended many times in the discourses that's known as guarding the sense doors. That's really the primary practice that's involved here, which is knowing, cultivating, being able to know when you're seeing something, hearing something, tasting, smelling. You know, you can walk down the street and smell something. Next thing you know, you're having, you know, lunch in Mountain View anyway. Maybe it's 11.30, but we're walking down the street and everything smells like some kind of great food down there. So can you notice that that's happening? Or you see something. You know, I, I get catalogs, I flip through catalogs, and some, I come, some mind state comes over me like, if I had to buy something, what would it be? You know, and I'm looking at these things, and well, that's the wrong question, of course. <laughs> but I focus on, you know, just a little. And the teaching is that you focus on a particular sign, what's called a sign or a feature, you know, of something that you like. And then you build on that, and you ignore all the fact that you don't need it. Right, that it costs too much, that you already have six of them, as someone was saying earlier. You know, so the energy immediately contracts around a particular feature of a sense object. You might love it, or it might be something that stirs up fear and hatred in you. You know, you hear one word. I'm sure I could name one, you know, that would, that would immediately, you'd be lost for the next half an hour, you know, working with how much that stirs up in you. So really noticing, oh, I had a thought. You know, and this is hard, but you know, this is what we work on. This is what guarding the sense doors means. Noticing if there are places that are particular triggers for you, realizing that you're going to make a practice of noticing seeing is happening. You know, maybe when you walk into a store, seeing is happening. You know, make a study of your research of how your eyes. What are your eyes drawn to? What is it? You know. So this is guarding your sense doors, learning your patterns, deepening your mindfulness. And, of course, another way is cultivating wholesome states, strengthening the wholesome, and Bernie will talk more about that. So the second effort is overcoming or abandoning unwholesome states that have already arisen. We may typically not notice until we're quite deeply, you know, we sort of hit our suffering threshold and something wakes us up, like, oh, this is miserable. Wasn't I going to do something about this with Dharma practice, right? So we wake up in the middle of something. So the first effort is to recognize these states and turn to working with them before, if possible, they break out into action. We've been looking at, you know, the path is presented as if you can somehow first not learn to not act and then learn not to even think that way. But it doesn't quite work that way. You have to work all along. You know, you may catch yourself in the middle of yelling at someone. But we've worked with that in right speech. So now we're talking about when you catch yourself in an internal state of some kind. How can, you, how can you work with that? So recognition is certainly the first step, but it needs to be sustained and deepened to allow some wisdom to arise. I know that I can go along indulging in negative thinking while feeling like I'm being mindful, quote, mindful of it. I mean, I'm aware of it. You know, I can be thinking, yeah, yeah, this is happening. So 
that's a certain level. It's better than nothing, but I think of it as the level where you're skimming along the surface trying to find a kind of a, a way in. You know, you're, you're really being swept along, like swept along in a flood, grabbing at branches along the side and not really catching any of them. But you're, you're trying. But keep trying, you know, and eventually, and realize, okay, no, really, 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 I have to, I have to do something about this. And then at some point, you know, a real, a really mindful relationship kind of kicks in and then there's a sense of really no I'm going to move I'm going to stand up I'm going to shake this off somehow wake up and really turn to intelligently trying to work my way out of this somehow so um, usually there's some train of thought involved you know we may experience it primarily as an emotional that's the unpleasantness is often in the physical emotional stomach clenching or whatever it is but it's being fueled by some train of thought or belief, generally. That's what makes it different from just having a little, you know, eaten too much or something. That's a whole different thing that may be the same feeling, but it's not, it's not so difficult to just be with that. But there's some kind of train of thought working. So it's useful to look at the Buddha's ways of working with unwholesome trains of thought. And he offers... He offers five ways, and I have some interpretations of how these have worked out for me. So, uh, if the wisdom regarding the situation is fairly clear, and the energy is not too strong, sometimes you can replace, he he calls it replacing, replacing the thought pattern with a more wholesome thought pattern. So he gives the analogy of how a carpenter will has a peg of some kind in a hole and will drive out use another peg to drive out that peg. The idea is that the mind can only be engaged with one thing at a time. So if you can manage to disengage it with this and engage it with that. So that might work very well, say, if you find yourself just engaged in petty criticism of your partner, you know, just nitpicking, nitpicking. And it's someone you love and you're aware that they have wholesome qualities. It might not be that hard to simply say, okay, I've seen this habit. I'm going to change and bring up reflecting on uh, more positive features and it might be indirect we might always think oh I'm thinking of someone I find very difficult and I'm supposed to go to loving kindness for this person that may be too difficult maybe you can you just think of compassion for yourself you know that you many states that aren't the exact opposite of what's going on are more wholesome in fact simply mindful the intention to be mindful is more wholesome so you're already, in effect, replacing, indulging in that state with replacing, with simply the intention to really work with it and be mindful of it and see it as a phenomenon that's happening, you know. So then the second, uh, the second way the Buddha mentions is that you can really tune in and acknowledge the suffering that's being caused by continuing to engage in this mind state. There's a very vivid simile of it's being like you realize that somebody's draped a carcass of a snake or a dead dog or something around your neck. (laughs) The Buddha's very vivid. But, you know, continuing to go around engaging in hatred or, you know, making up fear scenarios over and over and over again is like walking around carrying something really unwholesome, you know. And and you can realize that you can you can it helps to really feel the suffering that's causing you and if you can really get down to where you see, and if and there goes the mind thinking of yet another bad thing that might happen, uh, you know, oh, what if I didn't actually 
believe that it's necessary to kind of game plan every bad thing that might happen, you know, or remember every single incident where that person said something hurtful. You know, you, you can continue along that path, but the more carefully you notice that each time you do that thought, you're stabbing yourself in some way, right? So you really are having the karma of that habit. You're either feeding it or you're not feeding it. You're feeding something else. So every moment that you can just move the mind off of continuing that track. So it can be very helpful for, uh, you know, your and your sense of conscience can be your ally here. You know, we, pro- we tend to think of ourselves as really, you know, being good people, wanting to be good people. And this is, it's really not good for the world either to continue to pursue, to turn yourself into a person who's completely lost in that kind of thought. I'm really shocked how quickly I can stir up my own version of these kind of emotions and scenarios that, you know, I can get into if I read the internet and and kind of buy into, you know, oh, I have to figure out what if, what if, what if. No, no, no. You know, we have to maintain our own sense of inner peace and goodwill. You know, hatred never did by hatred cease. Another favorite quote of the Buddha, that is true. So the third method, or maybe this should be the first, if it's possible, especially when you're meditating, is to just ignore it and just cut it out, you know. (laughs) Um, You know, sometimes you can, right? Sometimes we're just being a little lazy, and, and it's our old habits that are just kind of, something's just taken over, you know, and just cut it out. It's definitely worth doing if that's coming from wisdom and not self-hatred. You know, there's a big difference between yelling at yourself, stop, stop, I hate this, I have to make this stop. That's not going to work, you know. But if you're just kind of sitting there thinking about what you might have for dinner and for lunch tomorrow and, you know, cut it out. (laughs) You know, it can come from wisdom, right? So, anyway. Um, And then the fourth method is called stilling the thought formations. Maybe some of you have been taking Gil's Friday class in the in the Anapanasati, where this is a phase in that where, and I'm I'm I interpret this to be really a very broad and deep area of really creatively doing whatever it takes to figure out what's the deal with these negative emotions, you know, and with our beliefs. So. Stilling the thought formation. The Buddha's analogy here is actually quite interesting and very helpful to me. He says, so I thought to myself, it's like a person who's walking very fast and they say, how about if I walk slow? And so you slow down. Okay. Hmm. Okay. How about if I stand still? Okay. Standing still. Hmm. How about if I sit down? (laughs) Hmm. How about if I lie down? (laughs) And so it's this image of kind of shifting gears, you know, slower and slower and slower. And this is really what it takes. You have to stop the momentum of these things. You know, so and it may take different different activities, you know. It could be you're running around crazy and you just know what you need to do is go to the gym, you know, and work off some of that. That could fall under this category because you're doing with wisdom what it's taking to still these mental formations, right? Some of these mental formations come from ancient trauma and there's a lot of skillful therapies out there for working with different kinds of trauma. It may be, I would 
put in category four here doing whatever it takes to get to the bottom of things that you really don't understand. How come this energy keeps just taking over your mind? You know, you get around certain situations and it's like you're just hijacked by fear or anger or rage or something. If that's going on for you, there's a lot of skillful ways of having someone else help you look into that and providing a safe container for that. So, you know, meditatively, maybe the slowing down, you know, if you have time to just sit in your daily sitting when you come here, look into that slowing down because there's so much momentum involved and just the just the willingness to see more clearly. Let me just see more clearly. Just slow down and feel into this and feel into this. So whatever it takes to disentangle your energy, your identity, and your beliefs that are all kind of working together from some emotional situation that keeps you embroiled in one of these states. You can investigate, you know, is there an emotion? What's the physical energy? Are you really in touch with your real intention here? You know? What are you believing? Who are you arguing with or trying to impress in your mind? What, what voices are present? What, what situations are you imagining yourself into? So we gradually slow down, then we're working toward deconstructing these unwholesome states into their parts, into the conditions that give rise to them and into how they're manifesting right now. And we're beginning, then we can see it with more wisdom as something that's got these aspects that are all arising and passing, mental and physical processes. And we can begin to then directly see that these things are constantly changing, that they're not, that they can be impersonal, they're not the whole of who you are, they're a phenomenon that's going on. We don't have to cling to them. Right? So this is the fourth state, the fourth way of working with things, the whatever-it-takes way. (laughs) Uh, The fifth way is... The Buddha says this is the last resort, and he describes it as gritting your teeth and pressing your tongue against the roof of your mouth and crushing your mind with mind. <laughs> this always sounds so violent, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very I'm not sure I've ever made quite sense out of what this means, but I find it helpful. There are times when I'm really scattered and lost and dithering and trying to fix everything at once and caught up in all these different things. And it's just a very strong resolve to stop. You know, it's like the intense version of the previous one where you slow down. And I found it very useful maybe to really, really focus on each micro moment of an in-breath and an out-breath or to do a body scan of each half inch of my body, you know, something that really reigns in the attention when the attention is just all over the place. That's one way that I can understand this. And you'll have to monitor even then, is that is that not it, you know, because there are times when that's simply, you can't, and that's simply not it, you need to go to the gym, you know. So all these methods are, require wise monitoring of, and is this helping? You know, it, the times I've found this useful is when it's pretty obvious that it is helping and I can do it. You know, and it's not setting up yet more stress. It actually is somehow calming things down, taming and focusing my energy. Then it is helpful. So one thing, I don't know if this is a sixth way or just a silly interpretation of the fifth way, plugging it in here, but it's not silly. It's an important way. It's when there's really nothing you seem to be able to do about it. You know, absolutely nothing is going to change this. If you can find some connection with patience, 
some connection with bearing with it. You know, this is the human condition. This is, there's nothing to be done about this right now. There's recognizing it, but, you know, this is bearing one share of the fact that human existence is like this. And you can find a little, maybe, way to just keep acknowledging your aspiration to be free from this as you practice continues. So anyway, we each need to develop our own collection of ways that work for us. The point is to take this aspect very creatively and very experimentally and playfully and also seriously. You know, because your life can go by just indulging in unwholesome mind states without really taking a look at what what does it mean to work on this? What's really going on here? So, um, so we're at this point in our whole path where we need to recognize that we need to cultivate and explore new ways to get at deeper layers of the mind that have made probably your experience of working with all the other factors less than completely satisfactory. <laughs> There's more going on that we need to work at. So we're working with this, maybe in what's a new notion of effort for you, not trying so hard, but doing what it takes to relax and open and allow and not interfere but also stay engaged with knowing what's going on even when it's uncomfortable and unfamiliar. So this is the kind of effort that's needed to practice the kinds of mindfulness and concentration that then leads to deeper wisdom which leads to really freeing the grip of these unwholesome states on our mind by transforming our view which brings us back to the first part of the path. It's just not worth it to keep indulging in these states. There's a way out. Okay. Hmm. Um, Well, we're running late, aren't we? Okay, let's just do one of these. We want to have a little breakout session. So let's get in groups of four. Four and five. Whatever it takes. Get... You know, we just discuss a question that I will provide for you. Yeah, we're okay. I want to do this in the way that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's yes. Let's make groups of let's make groups of five. Maybe one of you six can join a group of four, and we'll have some groups of five. Okay. I think this works fine. Okay, so I want us to do this in the way where we go around and around and around. We're not just doing individual monologues exactly, but each person is putting in one thought, you know, and or one aspect of this, and then we go on to the next person. And so you're listening to what each person says, and that may trigger something else in you. And so the group is kind of building some wisdom around this, all right? So, the question is, with respect to working with difficult mind states, 
What kinds of effort do you find most helpful? Or have you found most helpful? Okay, so what has helped you in working with difficult mind states? You might introduce each other if you haven't done that. I meant to say that earlier. Just know it. Just go around, and say your name, and then um, and then pick somebody to begin with. If you can't choose, pick the person nearest to the front here, and just just go around and round and offer what kinds of effort are helpful to you in working with difficult mind states. I mean, I talked a little long, so let's come back together. Like to share any any themes or especially resonating ideas that came up? Someone in a group uh, said something that struck a chord with me. They said that... Uh, when something happens, they just remind themselves that the process for change is already in motion and they don't even need to do anything. And it's beautiful. something to that effect. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Um, so... One thing that came up is sometimes the the thoughts come up unbidden, you know, and so uh, self compassion and meta mm-hmm. that, that thought came up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wisdom to see that they just come up, you know. And um, just a comment about the group process. Um, it was really fascinating. Um, it felt a lot like every we were influencing each other quite a bit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, d- depending on the the technique of the mind state. It it sort of wove together. I mean, I, I I'm, I'm speaking for the group, but that was my perception. And um, you know, from either biting down, you know, no, you know, as a technique, or self compassion, or and it just it was a really beautiful experience. Good. I, I was with Richard in the group, and it was so nice, really. I think we were in the same wavelength for some... We, we were in the same wavelength, really. It, was very, it worked really nicely. Um, and what it was interesting is realizing maybe things that we are doing without thinking about it, how to deal with those states... Somehow we already were doing it, but never identified mm. that that was that was very nice. That oh, was like, oh, great. yes, you're right. I never speak it out, but yeah. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's working. <laughs> great. 
Yeah, we do have a lot of natural wisdom. You know, some of this is just realizing that we wouldn't got this far if we didn't have some ability to work with this stuff. So it's highlighting it and, you know, appreciating it. Okay, let's take a break. We'll come back about 2.30 and uh, talk about cultivating wholesome states. <laughs> 